Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and this is an episode in In Conversation, which is an Oxford University Press podcast. And today I'm very pleased to say we have Michael Gordon on the show, and we'll be talking about Michael's new book out from Oxford University Press, On the Fringe, Where Science Meets Pseudoscience. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a historian of science, uh, which is not something most people come across in their everyday lives. Uh, um, uh, I, I look at basically science is a human activity that uh, has existed for quite some time, and I explore how it's developed over the past. Uh, I particularly emphasize uh, things related to Russia and the Soviet Union and to a lesser degree, Europe and North America. And uh, in particular, I'm interested in physics and chemistry, um, atomic bombs, chemical developments, things like that. But uh, every historian of science is kind of a bit of a generalist. And so that's where I sit in the field. I teach at uh, Princeton University uh, in a history department. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, let's get right into the book. Uh, why did you write On the Fringe and what did you hope to accomplish with the book? Uh, so this is a long-standing interest of mine. I, as far back as I can remember going to li- public libraries and looking through books, which is something like seventh grade, I was drawn to that section of the library, which had books about UFOs and oh, yeah. uh, all that stuff. And uh, I was always fascinated by it because I was a very sciencey kid. And I thought like this stuff, it, it's kind of like science, but it, it's clearly kind of not, or it wouldn't be classified in this way. And my science teachers didn't like talking about it. So I was always fascinated by how the boundary got set up between science and not science. And then when I became a historian of science, I was just always kind of drawn to these fringe phenomena, these margins. And uh, over time, I ended up getting a teaching position. And I thought this would be a great way to teach people both some of the philosophical questions that come up with defining science and the place of science in our culture and society, but also just a way of getting to think about how the science that we live with really works by looking at the places where it doesn't, the kind of the edges, the strange phenomena. So I taught for several years a class on on the history of pseudoscience in very many different ways. And this book kind of grew out of my experiences teaching the class. It's not written that way, but it's the kinds of things I would work on with the students about the boundaries between science, non-science, and pseudoscience. And the goal is just to get people to think critically about what they mean when they call something scientific, what they mean when they call something pseudoscientific, and how that might help them think a little uh, more clearly about the way science functions in the world today. Well, I think you succeeded marvelously. Um, Let's begin with some definitions. And uh, a wise historian once told me that an empire is what you call a country you don't like. And uh, you give a kind of similar definition of pseudoscience. Can you talk a little bit about that definition? Sure. Uh, pseudoscience, um, I mean, I start the book by saying, like, it's not a real thing. And I really <laughs> mean that. It's not a real thing. Um, there is, it's not the case that someone gets up in the morning and says, well, I'm a pseudoscientist, so I'm going to go to my <laughs> pseudo lab and make up some pseudo stuff. That's just not what happens. Um, Everybody who, who is accused of being a pseudoscientist and the accused is there is, is accused by someone else. What they think they're doing is science. They think they're making knowledge. 
Now, they could be wrong about that. I, I, I think that I know how to dance and I, I don't. Um, like people are <laughs> often very wrong about what they think they, they're doing. Um, but that, I think it's worth taking that idea seriously. Um, pseudoscience is a term that is imposed on you from the outside by somebody else. In the same way that heretic is, nobody thinks they're a heretic. People think that they are true believers in the right religion. Someone else has called them a heretic. And so you automatically, with the term pseudoscience, get this power differential and a sense of being marginalized out of a conversation. And it's that fight that is so fascinating to me. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that we're about to publish an interview with a female Catholic priest in Canada. And wow. I rest assured, she does not think she is a heretic. <laughs> not at all. Um, so it, it, in the end, the distinction is really about what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And I put those two terms in air quotes. Uh, and this is what you call the demarcation problem. Can you talk a little bit about the demarcation problem? Sure. Uh, the demarcation problem, as that term, demarcation problem, is coined by uh, an Austrian-British philosopher named Karl Popper, who uh, has a lot of uh, public recognition, uh, basically for talking about this particular question. I'll, I'll get to him in a minute if you want. But the demarcation problem is sort of how do you decide uh, first between what's correct and incorrect knowledge? That's one kind of demarcation problem. Then there's another one between deciding what is science and what is non-science. I mean, there's plenty of things we do that are not sciences, um, but are still perfectly legitimate, acceptable, interesting forms of human activity, writing poetry, gardening, etc. And then there are things, and the third kind of demarcation problem, which is the one the book is really about, is there are things that look an awful lot like science. Um, to most people, they have they meet a lot of the criteria, but something's off. They don't quite fit, and that is the thing that is often called by people pseudoscience. And uh, that is the demarcation problem. How do you tell apart those things that have a lot of the properties of science, but somehow don't seem to be quite right from the genuine article, however you would define that? And so Popper tried to come up with a, a bunch of criteria for this. He came up with this term sometime in the 1920s and popularized it in the 1950s. But the problem is as old as knowledge is. Hippocrates writes about this um, before the common era. Anytime you have someone making a knowledge claim and trying to say that somebody else is wrong or is faking it, you will have this problem emerging. And it emerges not just in science, it emerges in fake news, it emerges in lots of areas of life. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Popper. I, I Before I read your book, I was a huge Karl Popper fan. I think he's still very widely read in college and uh, what is called logical empiricism. This is what I learned in college. Um, what is it and what are the objections to it? Um, so that's a, a, it's a big topic and it's a great question. Um, logical empiricism was an extremely influential school of philosophy and still to some extent is very influential, although we're maybe now living in a post-positivist era and the, the sort of death throes of the doctrine are, are longstanding. It um, is often associated with a bunch of Central Europeans, largely Viennese, around the period 1900 to 1930. And logical empiricism basically says that it takes two parts of that word. All knowledge comes in two forms. It's empirical, that is, it comes through your senses. And there's other kinds of knowledge which are logical, things like two plus two is four, logical relations that you can't have 
P and not P at the same time. And when you use the rules of logic to put together these empirical sense data points, that's how you build accurate knowledge. And said that way, it sounds totally normal. Of course, what's going on with science or knowledge in general is we take the world that we find and we put it together in a rational way. The, the problem comes when you dig a little more deeply. So the, um, Popper himself was a critic of logical empiricism because he thought it was too naive in how it put together these statements. Um, so I'll give you a Popper's critique, a, a Popper critique of it, and then I'll uh, say some other okay. things that are sort of not okay, not okay with it. Um, that said, it's an extremely powerful way of thinking about the world, and it clears up a lot of um, junk out of the conversation. And what the logical empiricists wanted to do was to get rid of conversations that are not empirical or not logical. Like, yeah, I mean, so you can't. I yeah. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but they, the, I think this is the Vienna Circle, and I think I yeah. remember them saying that s scientific sentences that don't have an empirical component are meaningless. <laughs> yeah, they, they literally have no meaning. They yeah, don't they refer. Have no meaning. <laughs> um, and, and there's something to this when you say, like, how many, the, the classic example, which no medieval philosopher really said, but how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, um, that sentence doesn't mean anything. There, there, yeah. there, there's, we don't know what angels are. We don't, we can't count them. So yeah. this is just not a thing you can talk about sensibly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it's very powerful in many ways. This is still how we think about the world. Popper's problem with it is that it didn't really help you with demarcating. Because the way that logical empiricists would say, you know that a theory is true is that it is confirmed. So you go out and you find sense data and you look at it and you say, oh, that has confirmed my point of view. Um, therefore, my, the theory that I had is more valid than it was before. And then you keep adding things. The problem Popper had with this is that um, literally everything can be confirmed if you have enough data. Uh, you just keep throwing data at it, and it doesn't help you discriminate. The examples he used were Marxism and Freudianism, uh, where if, if you just, um, if you say all history is the history of class struggle, and you find a bunch of examples of class struggle, it seems like you've confirmed your theory. And you could continually do that. And if someone says, well, here's an example of something that's not class struggle, you'll say, well, you're just not looking at it right. If you look at it right, you'll see it's class struggle. Um, and Popper wasn't satisfied with that. He thought that's actually not what knowledge is doing. He was very impressed with Albert Einstein's prediction that there would be a strong curvature of sunlight uh, behind the sun, of starlight behind the sun after, during a solar eclipse which was confirmed in 1919. And what so impressed Popper was the daring of it. The like, if I make this prediction and I am wrong, then I'm just wrong. Throw out my theory, it's done. Yeah. Einstein didn't quite say that, but that, that, that was how Popper read it. Um, and that kind of bravado really gra grabbed him. So instead of thinking, is my theory confirmed? You want to be able to state a falsifiable claim. That is, I believe this is true, but if you find X to be the case, then I'm wrong, and then you should throw out my theory. And so he thought a better way of thinking about logical empiricism is still to be based on empirics and logic, but to shift the burden towards things being falsified as opposed to things being confirmed. And there are reasons why that's not consistent with logical empiricism that, that have to do with uh, Popper doesn't quite think truth, that you never quite know whether a theory is true. A theory is just not yet false. 
And yeah. so we're always in this level of provisional uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, there are other things that are wrong with logical empiricism, such as the fact that you could have these clear sense perceptions that are independent of a theory, that those things exist. Um, because uh, this has been a long debate since as long as the Vienna Circle was around. It's often called the Duhem-Quine hypothesis, that every observation is theory-laden in some way. Yeah. Because your, your instrument, whether it's your eyes or your device, has theory built into it, and into what you see and what you don't see. Optical illusions are a good example of this. Yeah, so we've talked about this, the, the idea of falsifiability. This, this I remember very well from college. And and is is there something wrong with falsifiability as a criterion in the demarcation problem? And have there been attempts to fix it? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, so falsifiability is an extremely popular demarcation criterion. So for Popper, it was the demarcation criterion. If a theory cannot be falsified, it cannot make a falsifiable statement. That is, a, a, a psychoanalyst, according to Popper, would never say Freud predict this, and if you prove that it doesn't happen, then my theory is wrong. He thinks that will never happen. So therefore, it's a pseudoscience. It looks like a science, but it doesn't have a falsifiable core. Um, there, I think there are two problems with this. One is it's very hard to find out whether you've actually falsified something. If you, Marshall, make a prediction uh, that something is true, and I try to measure it, and I don't get the right result, we can conclude a bunch of things from that. We can conclude that you were wrong, or we conclude that I'm incompetent, or that my machine is broken. <laughs> like, and and uh, I don't know what your high school science lab experience was like, but mine involved a lot of me being incompetent, or possibly most of the accepted knowledge in the universe being wrong. So, like that—that yeah. that was so. So it's very hard to determine that you've actually found the right result. This is sometimes called the calibration problem. How do you know that your instrument is working properly? Well, you test that against the phenomenon you know exists. But if the existence of that phenomenon is in question, you end up with a circle. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. The, the, but the main thing I think that is not satisfying with falsifiability as a demarcation criterion is it doesn't cut the world in the right places. Um, you want, at the very minimum, a criterion that you had to include most of the things that we think are science and to exclude most of the things that the, the general consensus is are pseudosciences. So you want astrology to be out and creationism to be out, but you would like geology and natural selection and uh, cosmology and particle physics to be in. But it, it doesn't quite work that way. I mean, uh, creationism makes lots and lots of falsifiable claims uh, because they've read Popper, so they know that that's the criterion. So they say, okay, well, um, <laughs> you will not find this kind of rock formation or you will only find this kind of rock formation in these contexts. And that's because of the flood. And that's why we know it's true. Um, it, the people who flat earthers have lots of falsifiable claims where they say like, you will not be able to do this. And many of those claims have in fact been falsified. That is, in fact, you are able to do the things you, they say you can't do. But um, so, so if, as a criterion, it doesn't seem to exclude those fields. Astrology is nothing but falsifiable claims. I mean, it's just predictions. Yeah. On the other hand, um, those sciences that you can't run the tape again, like the history of Earth's geology or the cosmos or um, speciation, it's very hard to do lab-based experiments, which is most of the context in which you can do falsification. Yeah. So. Um, so as a result, it's like, do we really want something that lets astrology in, but leaves geology out? 
And uh, so I, I just don't think it's satisfying. It was designed to exclude Freud, and it does that very well. And, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but, but that's what it was designed to do, so it shouldn't be surprising that it does the job. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so attempts to fix it. Um, it, it uh, the philosophical critique of Popper is very thorough by many people who are much more clever than I am. I'm a historian, not a philosopher. Um, but uh, they've basically concluded for a bunch of reasons that this kind of semantic crit criterion, a one-dimensional yes-no test, is never going to work, in part because science is a really complicated human phenomenon where different sciences have different methods. There's not a single scientific method. There are many different ones used in different fields and different approaches. And uh, you're never going to get a bright line that, in that cuts everything where you want. But you maybe you could add other dimensions, like um, there's a philosopher named Massimo Piglucci who argues that if you had two dimensions, uh, say empirical groundedness, like how much empirical data is there for something, and that's one axis. And another one is how, how copious is its theoretical uh, generalizability. Then some fields like particle physics are like really high on both axes. Um, other fields that have a lot of empirical confirmation <clears throat> don't have a lot of theoretical generalizability, and then you'd end up closer to, uh, to, to being in a zone that's, if you're low on both registers, you're either not generalizable and you have poor empirical confirmation, then you are definitely in a uh, camp that you might call pseudoscientific. Yeah. So uh, there have been other sort of more micro attempts to try and rule out this doctrine or that doctrine, some of them quite successful, but uh, the full scale popper thing just hasn't uh, taken off. Yeah. Let's, let's go ahead and get into the kind of meat of the book. And, and that has to do with your categorization of various kinds of sciences. We're not going to call them pseudosciences, but let's try to get through most of them if we can in our limited time. So you begin with what you call vestigial sciences. Um, and you give the example of astrology and alchemy. What is a vestigial science and why are they important? What are they? Uh, so, so I think vestigial sciences is basically like most knowledge uh, in a sense. Uh, science is a dynamic enterprise, at least the way it certainly exists now. You could argue that the scholastics in the medieval period had a different vision. But the way it exists now is it's designed to progress and change. So people propose theories and then they get refuted or seen as not generalizable or too weak, and they get dropped. That's just the normal passage. Sometimes, though, some doctrines don't quite die. They just stick around, even though they are no longer seen as reliable knowledge by the majority of the people practicing science. Astrology is a great example of this. It wasn't just a science in the early modern period. It was, it was the science. It was extremely empirically engaged. People were taking observations every day of the planets. It had a huge mathematical background to calculate the, the, the sort of spherical trigonometry that you would need in order to know the positions of everything. And um, it made concrete predictions, and it was very, very well funded by local princes. <laughs> Everybody had one, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, you're at your local court in Brandenburg, you need an astrologer, and everybody needs to have And in certain parts of the world today, there still are local astrologers who do things that sometimes they're like, if you want to schedule a wedding, um, say in South Asia, it's quite common to do that astrologically. The Burmese regime, the Myanmar regime, several regimes ago, Slork used to have uh, astrological decisions for politics. We would consider that now a little silly or dangerous, but um, but in the early modern period, it's totally normal um, to have that. And then 
things changed. Uh, the, the Earth stopped being seen as the center of the universe, which made some of the uh, theoretical background of astrology not make any sense. They had better and better data. And it seemed like the predictions, the, the mechanism didn't seem to make any sense of why the positions of the stars would have this effect. And so it basically uh, got moved out of the mainstream, and then it basically became non-science. And But there are some people who still, over the centuries, so this by the early 18th century, it's pretty much no longer really a phenomenon, but that people who still think it's an important area of knowledge, those people tend to get called pseudoscientists by people in the mainstream. But they're, they are, in a sense, practicing a thing that was a science, but has ceased to be. Uh, the alchemy case is much shorter uh, in, to describe. In the early modern period, the distinction between alchemy and chemistry is not clear. The words are used interchangeably. Some people are trying to turn lead into gold. Some people are trying to make medicines that make you live longer, which we now consider also part of chemistry. Um, and some people are doing things with metals. It's, it's just a, it's a broad array of things. In the 18th century, you start to get a categorization where people are still doing roughly the same stuff, but one set is calling the other half alchemists and saying they're backward and mystical, and I'm doing science, I'm doing the real thing, and you start to get a differentiation between the two. So vestigial science are those sciences that were once an, a doctrine um, that was considered scientific, but that have faded from the mainstream. Intelligent design is one of these, creationism is one of these. Yeah. Um, so th th that's, that's one categorization. Yeah. So then uh, if I understand you correctly, we could currently be practicing a vestigial science before it's become vestigial. <laughs> Absolutely. Not only can we, we, we certainly are. Uh, um, it, it, the, the, the central dogma of molecular biology in the, in the 50s, which is that DNA makes RNA, makes protein, and it never goes the reverse way. That yeah. was molecular biology. And now that's just wrong. <laughs> um, if it, it, we have prions, we have we know that that RNA can modify DNA. We have a very complex vision, so um, it, it is one of the sort of I guess subtle theses of the book that that pseudosciences and the things that are called pseudosciences are in some sense often natural byproducts of the scientific process moving forward. Most things published today will be considered wrong in about ten years, maybe just yeah. a little wrong, but yeah. some of them a lot wrong. And that's okay. I, I often hear this when people say, you know, you want to be on the right side of history. The problem is nobody knows which <laughs> side that is. And the right side of history flips around sometimes. Yeah, you could be really right does. and then wrong I, and then right again. Yeah, Acupuncture I, goes in and out and in and out of being okay. Uh, it, yeah. it doesn't just go in one direction. Yeah, that's very funny. Um, well, you go on to talk about hyper-politicized sciences. And here I'm on a little bit firmer territory. You talk about <laughs> Aryan physics. I chuckled, but it was a thing. And mm -hmm. Lysenkoism, what's a hyper-politicized science? Uh, yeah, this is a tricky category. It took me a long time to come up with a term because I don't want to just say politicized science because lots of science is politicized. Um, and that doesn't make it invalid. In fact, it's kind of hard to know sometimes what an unpoliticized science would be, be fun science through public institutions. Hyper-politicized, though, is something else. It's when a political regime kind of puts their weight behind a science and says, this is the correct one. And the correct one is not just not science, it's illegal. Um, and so Aryans, Aryan physics was a thing that uh, actually failed. Uh, so there was a, an attempt by two Nobel Prize winning physicists. They were both experimentalists. Um, starting in the 20s, but really ramping up after Hitler took power in 33, to argue that relativity theory especially and quantum theory are Jewish sciences. 
They're abstract, they're theoretical, they're not grounded in the real world, and they're basically pseudoscientific. So they appropriate the language of pseudoscience to, to argue against the mainstream. This is one of the reasons I don't like the term. It's pretty flexible and can yeah. be used against you. Pseudo, uh, uh, creationists call Darwinists pseudoscientists all the time. Um, so uh, the Aryan physics thing was an attempt to try and basically fringe that stuff out. They've already fired the Jews from teaching science in the universities, but they also want to stop non-Jewish scientists from teaching this stuff or considering it true. And they push for it, um, but they fail. And they fail because um, other scientists like Werner Heisenberg argue pretty effectively that you need this kind of science to do the high-tech electricity and explosives work that you want us to do for you for the military. So mm -hmm. you can either have your ideologically pure science or you can have a science that works. Uh, which would you rather have? And the Nazis funded a ton of science. So they, um, some of that to very murderous effect, but um, others of it is stuff like the bee dance language came from a, a work that was done in looking at pollinators and how they worked for the, for feeding the Reich. So, uh, so Aryan physics was an, is a thing that's often pointed to as a pseudoscience. And it was a thing where the politics are inextricable from why the claim was considered valid. The Lysenko case, um, this is the one um, that you as a recovering Russianist, I know, uh, are very familiar with. Um, yeah. in, um, in 1948, and this is something that a lot of people don't know, and I, I'm sort of surprised, but in 1948, the Soviet Union banned genetics. It said genetics is a pseudoscience. It's not real. And instead, the inheritance of acquired characteristics is how uh, heredity happens, not through genes. And this was a result of a long fight. Uh, between a, a group of geneticists against someone named Trofim Lysenko, or Lysenko is how it's spelled, L-Y-S-E-N-K-O. Uh, so Lysenko argued that, um, that genetics is a pseudoscience and also that it was un-Marxist to believe this stuff. And that fight went on for about 20 years. And then in 1948, Stalin decided he was going to intervene in the debate, and he intervened on the side of the anti-geneticists. And until, from 1948 to 1965, it was more or less illegal to uh, do genetics in the Soviet Union. People still did. They called it radiation biology um, or biological physics. They did it under the auspices of physicists, usually, who had protection because of the atomic bomb. But, um, but, this, but, but the same dynamic of we have a fight and then the fight gets resolved, but it gets resolved through politics, not through mechanisms, uh, through external politics, not through the politics of the scientific community itself. And that's another case of, um, I often ask students, how would you feel about the Lysenko affair if, if Stalin picked the geneticists? Is, is, is what's wrong with this <laughs> that Stalin picked the wrong guy? Um, because, yeah, we criminalize stuff now. Like, it's illegal to do human, human cloning research in the United States. And, and many of us think that's a good idea. Um, but there's other things, like it's illegal in the U.S. to do public health research, which treats guns and gun violence as a public health problem. Uh -huh. that's, that's not legal to use federal funds for. Um, that's an interesting problem to discuss about where hyperpoliticization begins and ends. But the pseudoscience label is all over this domain. Yeah, you can see how it's on a continuum because science exists in a world that has politics. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it would be interesting to know what that world without politics would look yeah, like. I, I don't. I don't know either. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm thinking maybe uh, 
uh, I, I forget where Spock was from, but Vulcan. Yeah, maybe <laughs> Vulcan. Vulcan. They, uh, they the Vulcans that. were you. The Vulcans were eugenicists. If you want to get into the universe, yeah, yeah um, I don't want to uh, go there. <laughs> I'm not going there. Um, all right, let's move on to counter-establishment sciences. And here you give a bunch of examples, and you can pitch whichever ones you talk about: phrenology, cremationism, cryptozoology, aliens, kind of yeah. thing. Can you talk a little bit about counter-establishment sciences? Sure. Uh, this is actually what drew me to the question of pseudoscience in the first place, um, because these things existed. So these are doctrines that, that really look like science in a lot of ways, but they look like science not just in that they have equations or make claims about nature, but they have conferences and journals and credentials. They do all the things that scientists do. So they have an so if the scientific establishment has an establishment like physicists have journals they have conferences they they know they do all those things together, so do the creationists. The creationists are probably the best example of this, and that they have their own educational institutions that credential people and say you are now a qualified creationist. They have their own journals. Those journals have peer review. Usually, when I say this, people are like, oh, like who do they get to peer review it? Just like other creationists, and I'm like, who do you think peer reviews evolutionary biology? Yeah. Like other evolutionary biologists. Um, so, um, so, so, so these things have, uh, they, they, they just, they, they look, they mimic science in a very clear way. And it makes sense that they would because science training, that's what science pedagogy is, right? You're being trained as a young geologist to do things that older geologists do. You learn the institutions and the structures and you develop into a mainstream scientist. The counter-establishment ones, do all that, but they do it outside the mainstream. They do it on the fringe. So creationism started out as really a religious movements, several movements that um, just critiqued Darwinism from this side or that side. But then they started developing textbooks and journals. And by the 1970s, you just had professional creationists. You had people who did this for a living. Um, and that phenomenon I find really interesting because it also changes over time. The phrenologists who were very popular in the first half of the 19th century, they did this too, but their counter-establishment looks like what an early 19th century British science would look like. Whereas the creationists look like what a Cold War era science would look like. Um, and to some degree, the flat earthers, which are a phenomenon of the last dozen years or so, um, they they look like what science in the 21st century would look like, uh, and so there, there's just interesting ways in which these groups um, are a, a sociological template of what's going on now. They're also in many ways vestigial. Creationism is vestigial, um, uh, but also a counter-establishment science. But but it could be the case that some counter-establishment sciences that are counter-establishment today in some unknown future will be sciences. That is that is that is that is theoretically possible. Um, it, it would it would it, the question of how you cease to be on the fringe. Uh, some it's imaginable that like at some point there's just a massive shift. What what the philosopher Thomas Kuhn would call a paradigm shift, yeah. and everybody who was on the edge, like the Copernicans, become all of a sudden the mainstream, and then the Ptolemaic geocentric people end up on the edge. That could happen. Often what happens instead is sort of what happened with the alchemists and the chemists, which is a subset of them start to uh, rehabilitate their image and make themselves look less freakish and more mainstream. The intelligent design movement within creationism was an attempt to try to do that too, to clean themselves up 
and move themselves closer to the mainstream, but it didn't quite work. Yeah, I, I'm thinking particularly of uh, an example. This does happen with theories or hypotheses pretty frequently of the guy who, I believe he was Australian, and he for a long time argued that ulcers were caused by, oh, yeah. by bacteria yeah. and not worrying. And he was a laughing stock until he uh, won like the Nobel Prize for Physiology yeah. or something. Yeah. What, yeah. Can you no, tell the story? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 sadly, I forget his name. He's, he's a wonderful example. I'm glad you brought him up. I, I, he used to be a go-to example and I've forgotten about him. Yeah. He, uh, he, he, he just seemed to, it seemed to him that it looked like people who were gastroenterologists tended to have a much greater ulcer rate than people who weren't. And he's like, well, that could happen if it were a communicable disease. Yeah. Um, and it turns out there is, um, a thing, H. pylori, which is a bacterium, which causes most ulcers. You can still get stress ulcers, but most ulcers are bacterial. And he was, he was considered a laughing stock. Um, another guy, Stanley Prusiner, also won the Nobel Prize, is the one who argued that uh, mad cow disease and Kuru and a bunch of other diseases were not caused by viruses. They were caused by proteins without any nucleic acid, with no wow. RNA or DNA. And people were like, well, you can't replicate without having DNA. That's just like what it means to be a living thing or to be a virus, which is quasi living. Like you can't just have proteins do this. And it turns out that's actually what mad cow disease is. Um, <laughs> so, um, so you can have this thing where all of a sudden something that was really fringy becomes really mainstream. String theory, which is still controversial within sectors of physics, was a very weird theory. And then it became much less weird as people became dissatisfied with the consensus and we're looking for more radical ideas. So mm -hmm. the radical ideas live on the fringe and some of them are sometimes seized upon and brought into the center. Yeah. 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 It's, it's very interesting. I remember the guy about the ulcers though, particularly that's a fascinating yeah. case. I wish we could come up with his name. I'm sorry uh, to it, his relatives. It, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's also like uh, he also experimented on himself. He gave himself ulcers and then yes, cured himself right. of ulcers, which is, there's a long tradition of that in the history of science, too, of self-experimentation with yellow fever in particular. People died doing this to themselves, yeah. but thankfully well, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't die. So let's talk a little bit about mind over matter uh, sciences. And, and you give the examples of mesmerism and mediumism and parapsychology and spoon bending and this kind of thing. Can you talk about those? Sure. Uh, in some ways, you might call these counter-establishment sciences, too, but I wouldn't because they often take place in university departments uh, sometimes. So there, there's since forever, there have been people who have talked about, you know, second sight or clairvoyance or telepathy, um, those kinds of powers of mind. But they've been since the late 18th century in Vienna and Paris, they've been kind of a mainstream discussion on the borders between medicine and physiology and science. The idea that our minds don't just have the five senses we have, but they have additional powers like clairvoyance uh, that is seeing things in a distance um, that you can't physically access or telepathy, reading other minds. And there have repeatedly been attempts to try and investigate these using the tools of science. It seems like this is a claim about the empirical world. We have experimental tools that we should be able to use to test it. Mainstream physicians and scientists, and today mainstream psychologists, roundly think that extrasensory perception is not true. Uh, it's wrong and that it's pseudoscientific to keep advocating for it and that these theories have been debunked, but they keep popping up. One of the things I find fascinating about them is that there's a kind of arms race between the people who think these powers of mind are real and the experimental techniques available to the scientists. So many of our current uh, standard techniques 
things like randomized trials emerged in the late 19th century in an attempt to debunk spiritualists. Um, the placebo sham as a way of giving some, like telling someone you're medicating them, but not really medicating them to see whether the drug works or just the suggestion of the drug works was a late 18th century invention. It's actually Ben Franklin's idea um, to debunk mesmerism. Uh, so repeated uh, uh, advanced statistical tests are very popular in the mid 20th century in order to get rid of these claims that people actually have telepathic powers. But they, they, they continue to exist and psychologists dabble in this area routinely, um, often to the great displeasure of their colleagues. But they do push. There's, there's a, a lot of attention to trying to get rid of these results uh, because they seem uh, to violate most of what we think about how the mind works and how the world works. So uh, they've focused a lot of attention about methodology. And as a result, they've, they've done good things for science, too, by forcing it to confront its principles. Yeah, I'm reminded of every intro psychology class, which contains a huge dollop of statistics. Yes. <laughs> You're going to get deep in statistics if you do psychology. And that's a good thing, probably. Um, Let's talk a little bit about debunkers or so-called debunkers. What do they debunk and what is debunking? Does anybody ever conclusively debunk anything? Uh, that would depend on who you asked. Um, yeah. So <laughs> debunkers, um, they've been around for a long time too. Um, so uh, they're people who uh, confront people who, are, who have a theory on the fringe of some kind or other um, and say, I'm going to test your theory and prove it wrong. Kind of like MythBusters um, in its current incarnation. Those people are debunkers. Basically, they're, they're, they take a theory and they show you whether it's true or not true. Um, Alfred Russell Wallace, who is the other guy who came up with natural selection alongside Charles Darwin, yeah. um, he was anti-vaccination and he had a lot of other thoughts that were uh, unusual for his time period. But he also thought flat earthers were crazy. There were flat earthers then too, a different strand of the movement. And so he was trained as a surveyor. So he actually debated them and did experiments to show that what they thought was true was not true. The great, the great moment of debunking um, is really a 1970s phenomenon, although it has parallels earlier. Harry Houdini loved debunking spiritualists and magicians routinely debunk spiritualists or people who think they have powers of mind. Um, in the 70s, there's an organization called PSYCOP, uh, C-S-I-C-O-P, which is the Committee for the Scientific Inter uh, Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. They're the ancestors of uh, Skeptical Inquirer magazine. Yeah. Um, so they uh, organized a lot of uh, debunkings of spoon bending, of telepathy claims, of... Uh, these channelers, they were a thing when I was growing up, people who claimed they could uh, oh, summon yeah. past lives and enact them. Um, so uh, they, would, they would set up kind of experiments and, with some basic controls and uh, show, they would argue, that that just that was the end of it. Like the people couldn't pass these basic controls. The amazing Randy, uh, was, uh, uh, who was a magician, recently um, passed away. Um, he... Uh, did this for many years. Uh, he had a, a standing bet that if under reasonable conditions, you could exhibit um, certain kinds of telekinetic or telepathic uh, prop powers, he would give you a certain amount of money and he never had to pay because he would mm -hmm. always debunk them. The thing about debunking is it doesn't, it doesn't quite work because uh, for the same reason that uh, 
the confirmation verification falsifiability thing doesn't work is the people that you say you've debunked know you didn't bend your spoon will always say, well, you did the measurement wrong or you, you were observing under the wrong conditions or something else like that. So if people want to continue believing, they often have quite rational grounds for saying that the measurement wasn't right. Um, and, and so the debunkers, uh, so that's one problem. Another major problem is debunking takes a lot of time and we have a, we have a pretty small scientific community. It's bigger than it's ever been, but it's not huge. And we want them to also do stuff like, you know, research virology or epidemics or just to pick random examples unrelated to the present moment and um, say that um, you uh, say that they have to like answer all of their mail they get where you have to debate this guy and show that he's wrong. They, we would never get any work done because there would be too <laughs> much of that happening. So you have to just say, you know, it's not worth debunking you. So when someone says, well, if he's so wrong about Einstein's Einstein being incorrect about gravity. Why don't you just explain why he's wrong? And the answer is it takes too much time. I have other things to do. And that's not a great answer because it's really intellectually unsatisfying, but that's often the the right answer um, for for people who are making decisions about whether I'm going to invest my time just to prove that the earth is round. Like, do I really have to do that? And some people will invest that time and some people won't. Yes. Uh, time. That, that really is the issue. Time and money. Yeah. And yep. Time is money. So there you go. So I want to talk a little bit about cold fusion because this is the one I really remember, cold fusion. Like that, yeah. this was an amazing thing. Ponds and Fleischmann. I still, when I read them in your book, I still knew those names. And it seems to me they illustrate a lot of what you're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about cold fusion and where it is today? Because it's still around, right? Yep. Uh, in a sense, it's vestigial. Um, this is, uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad you have that reaction. I, I did, when I first started working on this, I, when I first started teaching the class, I had a whole unit on cold fusion because I was like, of course, the students will know this. But of course, <laughs> Uh, this was in the this was this was about 15 years after the fact and of course they yeah. had been in diapers when cold fusion happened they had yeah, no idea right. what i was talking yeah. about yeah. um but in 1989 march 1989 uh two scientists from the university of utah um claimed that they had uh done cold fusion cold fusion fusion is when you take two hydrogen molecules or two any light molecules but hydrogen is what we're talking about here and fuse them together into a molecule of helium or lithium. That is, you you compress them. This is how hydrogen bombs work. This is how the sun works. It's an amazing source of energy. And it's potentially infinite because hydrogen is the most abundant thing in the universe. It doesn't emit any fossil fuels. Uh, It's not fossil fuel. It doesn't emit any carbon into the atmosphere. So it would be a way of turning water into infinite energy. It would end our pollution crisis and our climate crisis immediately. And energy would literally be too cheap to meter. The problem with fusion is that right now it's a it's an extremely hot process, so it takes a lot of energy. We we have fusion reactors, but they consume more energy to get the magnetic bottle that holds the plasma into to work than they produce as heat. So this idea was you stick a palladium an electrode made out of palladium, which is a metal, into a, a water bath, and you run a current through it. And palladium has the property of taking hydrogen molecules and saturating itself with them. And the claim was the palladium got so packed with hydrogen that some fusion happened there. But it took way less it took way less energy to make that circuit happen than it released in terms of heat and excess energy. So they they uh, had a press conference and there was a huge amount of excitement 
that this was, uh, if it had been true, it would have been the greatest scientific discovery of the millennium. Like it would have, it would have really transformed the world. Um, by May, the physicists have completely dismantled this claim and it's considered either fraudulent or a hoax. Uh, it's kind of hard to decide which it is. Um, there's a lot of, uh, different debates about who's culpable about what. There was an interesting priority dispute with a guy at Brigham Young University, so internal to Utah. But um, after their press conference, uh, they and the tech transfer section of the University of Utah, because this was about patenting uh, and money, went to Congress to ask for huge amounts of money to help fund research to develop this technology, and they almost got it. But at the May uh, American Physical Society meeting, there was a completely elaborate takedown of it, uh, very effective. Part of the problem was that Pons and Fleischmann didn't quite share all their data. They wouldn't show people what they'd done. The paper was still under review, so nobody could see it. Um, but if they had generated as much energy as they claimed, they would have been irradiated by so many neutrons that they would be dead. Um, so th either they were wrong, or our models of nuclear physics are completely wrong. And uh, we ended up concluding that our uh, models of physics were correct and that they were wrong. They ended up leaving uh, Pons retired to France. Um, I don't know if he's still there. Uh, Fleischmann died shortly afterwards. He's an interesting Czech emigre scientist, um, much more senior. Um, the guy at Brigham Young, Stephen Jones, uh, interestingly became a truther after 9-11 and was let go of his position at, um, at the university at Brigham Young uh, in relation to his activities there. Um, so uh, the thing about cold fusion is it was debunked within months of it coming out, but it's still around. Yeah, it um, it's called something now, it's got, there's different names for it. It's like, it's like um, the, prop, the, the properties of, light, uh, of, of rare metal electrodes, et cetera. The Japanese government invested a lot of money in it and many of the conferences still go through Japan. And they do work about how these electrodes work. What are the strange properties of palladium? Is it possible to somehow set up an electrolytic reaction that will trigger a fusion reaction? And so it still exists. Um, one uh, sociologist of science calls it an undead science. It's like a sort of, it just, it, it, it's, it's not live, but it's kind of zombie-ish. It's still around. Um, it's certainly not mainstream. And if you call it cold fusion, you are absolutely um, begging to be called a pseudoscientist. Because it very quickly moved from the hottest thing ever to completely false to now a zone where it's not that it's wrong. It's that it's in a parallel universe and has, in a sense, a counter-establishment built for it. Yeah. That still exists. Yeah, that's it's it's a fascinating story. It's still alive. I, I want to talk. Uh, we're, we're about out of time, but I want to talk a little bit about the replication crisis that you, everyone has probably heard of who listens to this podcast. And what I'm thinking is, there's a lot of pressure on scientists to find new things. I mean, mm -hmm. more than ever. And does this does this cause these sorts of demi-sciences, I won't call them pseudosciences, to appear? I mean, what is going on with the replication crisis? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, it's a fascinating uh, phenomenon. I've been following it ever since, uh, ever, ever since it sort of emerged roughly around 10 years ago as a real crisis. It's primarily in the fields of uh, psychology and in biomedicine, where it's proven very hard to replicate classic studies in the field. And what, there are a bunch of reasons why that, that, have, that this has been, there are a bunch of causes that people have 
pointed to. One is that people don't fully understand the statistical software they're using, or they don't understand how statistical tests work. So they, they make fallacious arguments that produce sensational results. But the fundamental phenomenon is the one you point to is the pressure to produce something new. Um, science is an incredibly dynamic enterprise, um, but it is also an extremely expensive enterprise. Uh, and uh, to get grant money, to get positions, to get published, to have a career in it, if your job is always to confirm that the person in the lab next to you is correct over and over again, you will have no career. Your yeah. job is to sort of novelty is something that is privileged. So we've set up a kind of moral economy in our in science, which requires novelty and requires novelty in order to, to continue to be in the business. Now, that novelty is not always to say like all accepted knowledge is wrong and we have to now think of DNA as, as quadruple helixes, not double helixes. It's not like that. It's that you need to push the boundaries of knowledge into a new direction a bit, um, but still somewhat close to the consensus. But the, the pressure to be novel, to have a more striking claim is, is quite serious and it exerts a force on especially younger colleagues looking to establish themselves, younger scientists in grad school or in early career, uh, who who are constantly looking for the next new thing, and they're chasing a limited pot of money in terms of grants. And so, the more exciting and out of out there you are, but not fringy, just out there, um, the more attention you draw and the more exciting your career is. Um, but this edges into a couple of phenomena. There's fraud. The case of um, Jan Hendrik Schön uh, at Bell Labs is a good example of this the years around 2000, 2001. He uh, produced a lot of results about organic semiconductors. So transistors made out of organic materials. And uh, they were very exciting. And he was <clears throat> he published a, a huge number of papers in Science and Nature, the two most prestigious periodicals. And uh, someone noticed that the noise in his graphs was the same in different articles, which Noise is supposed to be random. It should never look identical. And uh, no one was able to replicate his work. And then they eventually found out that he faked the data. He, his PhD was rescinded. Uh, he was fired from his job, et cetera. Um, he's now in either Switzerland or Germany, uh, but he was in New Jersey and Bell Labs. Um, so that pressure to, to be the hot young maverick is, uh, is serious. The replication crisis is a kind of less a legally fraught version of that, which is you, you have results that look promising and maybe you don't control them or double check them or try to refute them as much as you should have because you also have to publish a lot. So the throughput pressure of getting stuff out there and the um, need to draw attention to yourself, to make novel claims, to get published, it, it, it affects the ability of uh, yourself to check your own results. And there's so many articles to be peer reviewed and to, and to check that the community can't quite regulate it either. So, but if one of these strange doctrines that's not replicable was exciting and is now gone, gets a following behind it, you yeah. would end up with a fringe science. And yeah. the anti-measles vaccination is that story where there was a small N research result published in the Lancet that was later retracted as wrong by Wakefield and his colleagues and disavowed by most of the colleagues uh, by Andrew Wakefield. And uh, it's still cited by the anti-vax movement as evidence that the 
MMR vaccine causes autism because there's a published article about it, even though that article has been retracted. So that's a vestigial science, or it's a controversial science claim that that became vestigial and then wrong, and uh, very quickly, uh, but still has spawned a movement around it. So the the throughput, the speed, the dynamism of science operating under the conditions we have built it to operate under today generates this flotsam that that moves away from it, which can become seeds of new kinds of fringe movements. Yeah, I will recommend to the listeners something called Retraction Watch. Yes. I, I follow it just a little bit. I, I think the thing that's amazing is that there is a Retraction Watch yeah. and that they can basically publish stuff every day. Yep. <laughs> Which is both a, a, a statement. I know I said the scientific community is small before, but it's bigger than it's ever been. There's lots of stuff out there um, and lots of it, is just turns out pretty quickly to be debunked. So you can either focus on the fact that there's lots of stuff being retracted, so a lot of junk got into the literature, or you could focus on the fact that we're catching it, that yeah. the community is actually, in a sense, it's a kind of debunking, but as the community is looking through and trying to double check things, which is how the self-corrective property of science is supposed to work. It's just, it's just slow at it, and the speed of science is quite rapid. So uh, it's hard to keep up. Well, Michael, it's been wonderful talking to you. Let me conclude by asking you our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Ah, um, so this is a step away from these fringe debates. I'm working on a book on what happens to science uh, globally and domestically when the Soviet Union collapses. The world's largest scientific infrastructure within one single country breaks up into 15 countries, the Soviet bloc, which was highly integrated to it. What happens to those scientists? What happens to that scientific community? And how does that transform um, really science as it happens everywhere? Uh, it's at this point proving to be a gigantic topic and very hard for me to get my head around, but uh, it's quite fascinating. It's, it, it's, again, a sort of fringe thing in that what hap- we spend a lot of time thinking about what happens when science works normally. And this is what happens when like, all the money goes away. Yeah. What, 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 what do people do and how does knowledge get made? Well, that sounds terrific. When you're done with the book, you can be on the New Books Network again. I would, be, I would love to. Thank All you right. for this conversation. Great. All right, Michael. Thanks very much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. 